Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series where we discuss genetic diseases with physicians who treat patients with these conditions. We'll start off our series today with a discussion on genetics, new research, and the amazing new technologies today available for testing and treatment of disease. We'll also talk about when someone should think about getting testing on their own or getting their child tested for a genetic disease. When should people buy genetic testing kits like 23andMe or Ancestry.com? We welcome Dr. Jim Evans, Bryson Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Genetics in the UNC Department of Genetics. Dr. Evans is the Director of Clinical Adult and Cancer Genetics at UNC. Welcome, Dr. Evans. Thank you. As we start thinking about genetic diseases, there are certain words that may come to mind and are used frequently. Uh, one of those words is uh, mutation. What on earth is a mutation? Yeah, well, mutation in the purely technical genetic sense is any variation from some consensus or standard sequence. Um, sequence of, the, of your a DNA. Sequence of your DNA, right. Unfortunately, the term mutation has gained a rather pejorative meaning, and people think of a mutation as bad. In a technical sense, that's not true. Mutation can be any change. Um, for that reason, because there's some confusion, the field is actually changing the nomenclature and we try no longer to use the term mutation when dealing with human genes and diseases. We talk about variants um, for a variant in the sequence. And if that variant is associated with or causes disease, we now call that a pathogenic variant. So mutation really is, a, is an older term that is less and less in use. Because there are variants that actually are protective or are useful in some circumstances and maybe pathologic in others. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the focuses of modern genetics is to find those variants that actually benefit us, say, protect against disease. There are some good examples of those with certain variants that protect against, for example, HIV infection, etc. And I'd also just mention that the entire process of evolution really um, rides along with variants that end up conferring some advantage in a given environment. You can have a sickle cell uh, variant and survive malaria if you're living in Africa, or sickle cell disease uh, if you have more than one. Yeah, there content. are a whole host of both globin, beta globin um, variants. That's one of the constituents of your the machinery in your red cells that, that hang on to oxygen, as well as blood groups that protect against malaria. But if, for example, as you mentioned, certain mutations are present in, in two copies instead of just one copy, then that can actually cause problems to an individual. So there's an intricate balance there. Let's talk about some other words. Let's talk about the words genotype and then phenotype. What do those words yeah. mean? So really, the phenotype is what you see. Um, your phenotype is how tall you are, uh, what color eyes you have, perhaps your uh, proclivity to certain diseases or perhaps resistance to certain diseases. Your genotype is what underlies that. And there is not a clear 
or, or an exclusive one-to-one -one relationship between your genotype and your phenotype. You may, for example, have genes that um, would, under certain circumstances, make you very tall. But if you're malnourished, if you're that is in a in a certain environment, that genotype won't be manifest um, in your phenotype and you'll end up short, right? So the phenotype is what you see. The genotype are the underlying genes that tend in very broad terms to guide what you end up as. But I think this is a good opportunity to stress the fact that as that distinction that I just discussed would imply, um, your genotype isn't everything, right? Our genes are important in who we are and our medical status, uh, what we look like, etc. But our genes aren't the whole ballgame. Our environment and sheer chance are also very important. There are other words that we need to talk about, including the words autosomal and recessive, as ways that genetic information is passed from one generation to the other. Help me understand what the word autosomal... Right. Autosomal simply means that um, a gene that we're talking about is on one of your autosomes. That is most of our chromosomes. We have 22 autosomes that, that the bulk of our genes reside on. You look, and look under the microscope and see those chromosomes. But there are two other chromosomes that that are called sex chromosomes. They, they differ in the way they are transmitted from the autosomes, basically, or their effects. And if a gene happens to be on one of those sex chromosomes, for example, you've heard of X-linked diseases. Hemophilia is a good example. Colorblindness. I'm colorblind. That's because I have a mutation on my X chromosome. Because the chromosomes determine um, what sex we are, any variant that is on one of the sex chromosomes that uh, causes disease will have a different pattern of inheritance in the family. But most genes reside on autosomes. They are transmitted in ways that have nothing to do with your sex. And the, the two things to pay attention to there are there are diseases that are called autosomal recessive. And in such, for such a disease, you have to inherit a pathogenic variant, used to call it a mutation, from both mom and from dad. Um, that's the only way you end up with the disease. There are other diseases that are called autosomal dominant, where if you inherit that variant from mom or from dad and just have one copy of it, you will then have the disease. A good example of that would be Marfan syndrome, for example. People who are tall and have certain um, risks of aortic rupture and eye problems, um, or Huntington's disease. For those kinds of disorders, you only need to inherit one mutation. It can come from either mom or dad. And there I slipped up again and used mutation just to reinforce a, to you that we're, that's, that's right, that we are um, in the process of kind of changing that nomenclature. The technology of understanding genetics has tremendously changed over the last few years. What kinds of studies are, are occurring worldwide? Yeah, the advances in the technology of genetics have been breathtaking. When I was a fellow about 25 years ago, we could what we call sequence a gene, but it was, and that is define each of those rungs on the DNA ladder, um, usually in the range of a few thousand, um, to see if we could find a mutation. That is a misplaced rung or an incorrect rung or a missing rung on that DNA ladder. But doing so was a real challenge. It, it was not a trivial thing to even sequence a single gene. 
We now can sequence all 22,000 of a person's genes in a matter of a week or two. We can now sequence the entire genome. That is define every rung on your DNA ladder, all three billion of them. Um, and this has been due to advances in sequencing, really called massively parallel sequencing, where we can do millions of reactions at the same time and thereby define one's genomic uh, um, constitution. The important thing I would mention is that, as is usual in science, our technology has outstripped our understanding. So I can sequence your genome, um, define all three billion rungs on your DNA ladder. Making head or tails of that is a whole nother uh, ballgame. And we are only in the, the um, very earliest stages of beginning to really be able to understand your genome and what it means for you and for your health. Other words massive parallel sequencing, next-gen sequencing, yeah. whole exome sequencing. Those are, so next-gen sequencing is usually used synonymously with massively parallel sequencing. I like the latter term because it actually describes what we do. We're doing massive numbers of reactions in parallel. I don't know, you know, when next generation will be the next next generation, right? But you will hear next generation sequencing very commonly, probably more commonly than massively parallel sequencing. Exome sequencing, or also called whole exome sequencing, is basically looking at all the expressed parts of your DNA, all your genes. And we have about 22,000 genes. It takes about 22,000 genes to make a human. And an exome sequence is defining those. That's commonly done because the, the exome is where the variants that matter for us medically that we understand um, reside. So in a clinical setting, when we think somebody has something genetic, we might do an exome, sequence all 22,000 genes and look for the culprit. In research, we sometimes do whole genome sequencing, which also sequences all of the DNA material between genes and in the what are called the non-expressed regions of genes. If you were thinking about starting a family and you know, for example, that you're a carrier of a genetic disease, Let's use cystic fibrosis as an example. How can uh, this kind of testing and meeting with a genetic counselor help? Yeah. You know, many, many people, many of us, um, carry variants that can cause disease in a child of ours if our if our partner also carries such a, a, a variant and transmits it to the child. And like you say, cystic fibrosis is a good example of that. Um, among the Western European-derived population of the United States, about 1 in 20 of us have a pathogenic variant for cystic fibrosis. Now, that doesn't do you any harm at all if you are a carrier. But if your partner happens to be a carrier and you both happen to transmit that pathogenic variant to a child, then that child will have those two pathogenic variants in what's called the CFTR gene and will have cystic fibrosis. Now, you might be very interested in, in um, understanding whether you're both carriers because it, it could give you a heads up on what to be prepared for for your child, other individuals 
might wish to um, terminate a pregnancy um, that has two mutations or pathogenic variants in the cystic fibrosis gene. So it can basically help with reproductive decisions and with planning. Some people wish to avail themselves of that information and other people don't. And as you know, that's a highly contentious issue right now in our society. So this is an example where genetics and our technology and being able to define variants runs right up against hot-button social issues as well. What you've just described, though, is different than newborn screening. Newborn screening happens uh, pretty much to every child newborn in North Carolina, if not the United States. Yeah, every child um, who is born in the U.S. gets a heel stick um, within a day of, of being born. And the drops of blood that are obtained from that heel stick are then analyzed um, actually not through genetic um, analysis, through what's something called tandem mass spectrometry, to detect diseases that would, could cause catastrophes in that individual if there wasn't intervention enacted. So the perfect example for that, the iconic example of successful newborn screening is PKU, phenylcatenuria. If it is detected within the first month after birth um, and a child is put on a, a special diet, that child will be fine. On the other hand, if it's not detected within a month, the child will have severe cognitive impairments and, and have a very, very compromised life. So there are a set of diseases that we now screen all newborns for with the, the hope of intervening early and preventing them. Most of those disorders are genetic. And um, there's interest now in seeing how we can use massively parallel or next generation sequencing in order to augment newborn screening. And there are some disorders that we can't pick up through tandem mass spec that would be good candidates for using sequence analysis for. So I think we'll see this kind of DNA analysis um, helping with traditional newborn screening, but it won't replace it. So, Jim, you're a practicing clinician. When, when do you think genetic testing is most useful uh, for a patient? When do they really benefit from it? And when do you as a physician think that genetic testing really helps the patient? Yeah, like, like any medical test, um, we, we generally in clinical medicine don't do medical tests simply for curiosity's sake. Um, you know, what, what people want is th whether they're coming to the doctor because of a sore throat or a cough or because of a possible genetic disease, they want information that's going to help them make decisions, help them get better, etc. So right now, the most appropriate use for genetic testing is when someone manifests symptoms or, say, an inheritance pattern in their family that says, gosh, there might be a genetic disease going on. And by defining that, by doing genetic testing and defining that, we can oftentimes um, really improve somebody's health. An example I would use would be um, most of the listeners have probably heard of BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are genes that when they have have pathogenic variants in them, 
greatly predisposed to breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So a woman with a BRCA1 pathogenic variant will have a lifetime risk of breast cancer that is from 60 to 80 percent. Um, her risk of ovarian cancer approaches 50 percent. And knowing about that can help immensely because she can either undergo enhanced surveillance to try to catch the cancer at a much earlier and more treatable stage, or many women choose risk-reducing surgery, mastectomies like Angelina Jolie did, um, oophorectomies, that is removing the ovaries. Um, so, so we apply genetics typically now in genetic testing when there's reason to think, A, that there's a genetic process or disease going on or the, the person is at risk for something that we can act on. Um, and sometimes that action is, as we just discussed, reproductive decision-making. So even if we can't do anything about a, a really awful disease like Tay-Sachs disease, there are parents who wish to know whether the, a child that they're conceiving has Tay-Sachs or not. Um, and then if you want, we can talk a little bit more about what the role might be in the future for DNA analysis of healthy individuals. That's not something we're doing a lot of now, but there's well, let's, promise Well, let's that. take a tangent from that and ask the question, if you are part of a family and you are an adolescent, let's use the example of polycystic kidney disease mm -hmm. for, for a moment, you know your parent had polycystic kidney disease. It's an autosomal dominant mm -hmm. disease for the most part. For the most part, yeah. Uh, and do you want to know with genetic testing whether you're going to get polycystic kidney disease or not? Right. What do you tell so the, the yeah. parent and the child? Right. So when it comes to children and adolescents, um, we do genetic testing when the disease can have an impact on that individual during childhood. Um, so for polycystic kidney disease, which can manifest in, in young people, it's oftentimes beneficial to know whether they carry a pathogenic variant for that disorder, because if they don't carry it, say dad has polycystic kidney disease and they have not inherited that pathogenic variant, they can dispense with the usual screenings we subject people to, ultrasounds and, you know, really, really careful control of blood pressure, et cetera. On the other hand, if they find when they're 17 years of age or 14 years of age that they um, are at risk for polycystic kidney disease because they've inherited dad's pathogenic variant, then they know, okay, I need to begin having renal ultrasounds. I might qualify for certain studies of investigational agents that show promise in in um, stalling the disease. Or, or it was just FDA on. approved. Told oh, well, it was just oh, FDA right? approved. Okay, so. exciting. Yeah. So yeah, and that's, that's actually highlights an important thing about genetics, and that is it's far from a static field. We tell the people we see See, even when we can't help them right now or can't figure something out, that please stay in touch with us each year because, you know, there are new therapies being developed for genetic diseases. There are new genetic tests that can shed light. Um, we oftentimes do tests on people who three years before there was no test available, and now we can tell them something important. So, Dr. Evans, you're spending a lot of time trying to explain the process, the thinking process that goes into determining whether you're going to do a genetic test or not. And at the same period of time, if you flip on your TV, you'll see an ad 
for Ancestry.com or 23andMe, tell us what those tests really are, what kind yeah. of genetic test is being done, and, and then let's chat for a little bit about the ethics, actually, right. of doing those tests. Right. I'd love to address both those things. So the offerings that are out there um, for genetic analysis, we call it direct-to-consumer or DTC genetic testing, are extraordinarily wide and heterogeneous. And they really vary from the ridiculous to the sublime. In the ridiculous category, um, you will see promises of, of genetic testing that will tell you who you should date, and marry. Um, that is, they'll, you know, do do matchmaking with genetics. You'll see offerings um, that that purport to tell you what kind of sports you should encourage your child, whether you should encourage them to be a sprinter or a long distance runner. You'll see reports that that the people can analyze your DNA and tell you what you should eat. All of that's hogwash. It is complete and utter nonsense. Um, what I, you know, there's an offering out there to to uh, analyze your DNA and tell you what kind of wine you will like. And my, my retort to that is that you're far better off spending that same money on some bottles of wine and trying them. It's, you'll, you'll get a much better beat on what you like, and it'll be a lot more fun um, and accurate. So, so there are a lot of offerings out there that are just plain ridiculous, and, and you shouldn't go near them. On the other end of the spectrum, there's ancestry testing, for example. It's very accurate. Um, it's frankly not going to surprise most people because most of us just simply from family lore or um, looking in the mirror can kind of guess what continent our ancestors are from, but it's interesting and it's pretty accurate. Um, sometimes people get surprised. More oftentimes they, they don't. One of the things that you might want to think about, though, before you do any kind of direct-to-consumer genetic testing is the fact that your DNA typically enters databases um, when you do that. These companies are in business primarily to get data and sell your data. So you should just know that your privacy is being compromised when you when you do such testing. Including if you're the Golden State Killer. <laughs> exactly. That's how the Golden State Killer was found. Um, they submitted a sample um, for ancestry testing and said, I want to find my relatives, right? And sure enough, the Golden State Killer wasn't in that database. He apparently had not availed himself of ancestry testing, but relatives of his had, and they were able to find his relatives and it pointed directly to him. The other thing I would just, you know, warn you about is that, that if you pursue ancestry testing, you do want to have in the back of your mind that, that you might find out dad isn't dad, right? That happens happens right along um, with ancestry testing. So ancestry testing is valid. It's quite interesting, and it has relatively low downsides unless you start to think about those broader societal and privacy issues. In the middle somewhere is this murky area of wellness or medical direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I would generally tell people that the claims made by, say, 23andMe and other 
um, companies that purport to tell you about your health, your wellness, your risk of disease are largely um, unreliable. There are a few tests that have been FDA approved and you can see if you're a carrier for this disease or that disease. But like any complex medical test, I think you are better off talking with an expert about what test actually makes sense with you before you just sign on to a test that someone is, is peddling. Um, and you should probably speak with, for example, a genetic counselor. I'm not a genetic counselor, um, so I'm not pat feathering my own nest there. Um, but I would just say, in general, people are best off talking with a professional who isn't peddling a given test before they send their money in and get a test that's being marketed. So do any of the current direct-to-consumer tests identify the breast cancer gene? Well, that's a very nuanced answer, yes and no. So the FDA recently approved 23andMe's um, assay for three particular pathogenic variants involved in breast cancer predisposition um, for BRCA1 and 2. Here's the problem with that. There's been a lot of concern that this is going to do more harm than good, and I, I tend to agree with that, that grim assessment. The three pathogenic variants or mutations that 23andMe has been cleared to test for constitute a tiny fraction of the pathogenic variants that can cause predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer and are really only, um, it's only sensible to assay only those three in very, very narrow circumstances. And that would be someone who's Ashkenazi Jewish, who doesn't really have a strong history of breast and ovarian cancer in their family. Otherwise, it's an extremely incomplete test. So and you shouldn't take solace from the fact. You shouldn't. That's exactly right. That what, what most of us worry about is that people will take inappropriate solace from a negative result. They'll send their sample in. They'll say, oh, look, I don't have these, these mutations um, that, that 23andMe has been cleared to test for, so I'm off the hook. And nothing could be further from the truth in many of these cases. So I worry that people will get false reassurance. What do you tell a person who does find out, either from one of these direct-to-consumer products or even through clinical mm -hmm. genetic testing that they have a pathogenic variant or even the possibility of having a pathogenic variant and become enormously anxious yeah. about that result. Well, this is a concern, too. Um, the first thing I would tell people who get results from a direct-to-consumer genetics testing company that says, or through analysis of their data, because they're a third-party analysis that you can get. The first thing I would tell them is be careful. There was just a, uh, a paper published in Genetics and Medicine, the leading clinical genetics journal, that showed that 40% of the direct-to-consumer um, results were false positives. That is, upon reanalysis, I and mean, 40% That's right, were huge, wrong. Yeah. That's huge. So first off, I would tell people, your result may not be correct. Um, these labs have yet to show they can do a good job at the actual analysis. The second thing I would tell them is, 
this is when I, I would say you probably need to see a professional before deciding what test to get so you get the right test. But if you have undergone um, analysis and you've been found to carry a pathogenic variant for this or that, you really need to talk to somebody who does this for a living to try to put your, A, put your risks in context. How big are they? How you know serious are they? And B, what are your options for 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 dealing with that risk how you know what are the various things you can do to minimize problems from that so first make sure that you have the risk for real that it's a real test yeah it's a, a, a valid result, valid result. Yep. and then uh, if uh, af after you find that out then to determine whether there's something that needs to be done about it one could ask uh, the provocative question of whether people should take drugs of any kind uh, without having had pharmacogenomic testing. In other words, there are enzymes that are really important in metabolizing a variety of drugs, and one can test for those uh, abnormalities by genetic testing. Right. When would you suggest patients have that? Yeah, I, I think the whole area of pharmacogenomics, and this is basically like you said, um, we, we all know that drugs act differently in different people, and part of the reason for that is our underlying genetics. There are a handful of drugs that can, their use can be tremendously informed by genetic analysis. A really good example of that is a drug called abacavir, which is what's called a reverse transcriptase inhibitor and is used in the treatment of HIV. That is a um, drug that, that really requires the use of a genetic test because individuals with certain genotypes will have a very high risk of uh, hypersensitivity, severe reactions to that drug. So it's standard protocol when using that drug to get genetic analysis. Now, the hope for the field is that we will be able to productively inform the prescription of many, many different agents through genetic analysis. That hope has not yet been realized. And I think ultimately what we will see is there'll be a handful of drugs for which it's important to do genetic analysis prior to prescription. Yeah, for example, if you've had a stint put in for a coronary artery, whether you should take, take a specific grill, uh, that's right. Uh, particular. So, that's right. There are specific examples, and and that edges into another exciting area, which is that that the genetic analysis of somebody's tumor, their cancer, um, has begun to be productive in showing which therapies might be more or less effective. And that's a real that's that like pharmacogenomics. I would say it's farther along than is pharmacogenomics. But those are um, hopes for the future that we will be able to productively use that kind of information to, to tailor your prescriptions. But I would, I would tell people for the most part, that really hasn't, um, it's not ready for prime time for most drugs. CRISPR. Yeah. All over the news. What is CRISPR? Why should we know about it? Yeah, CRISPR-Cas9, or just CRISPR, is a new technique that has been developed that allows us to very efficiently edit genomes. So it can be used to go into cells and, and actually correct um, genetic uh, abnormalities. And it's very, very exciting to think about the possibility of using it for, say, gene therapy. You know, think about someone with cystic fibrosis. The, the problem that, that ends up causing them to need lung transplant and, you know, have, have a very, very um, difficult time of it in their life. 
the whole reason is they have this, this error in their cystic fibrosis genes. There, we can now kind of envision a future in which CRISPR could be used to repair those genes. Now, there are a lot of engineering problems to solve before we can do that in a productive way. Um, you'd have to get the CRISPR tools into those, those, all of those lung cells, et cetera. But it is a huge step in that brings gene therapy one step closer in many um, situations. It's also a tremendous step forward in making animal models for diseases because we can, for example, you know, accurately mimic the genetic um, constitution in a mouse of a, of a human disease. It will also have important, because we can do this in animals so readily, it opens the possibility of, for example, designing uh, pigs, for example, that that are um, that we would be immune tolerant to their organs, and that they wouldn't, and and using CRISPR to to tweak the genomes of the pig or to um, um, remove the retroviruses that are in other species to make animal organs compatible with us. These things are not certainly not a reality at this point, but CRISPR um, will accelerate our abilities and our, our prospects of doing that kind of thing. There's a huge concern with CRISPR from an ethical perspective, however, because you can imagine you could also CRISPR Cas9 in a gene for speed or, or height, height or, or skin or color, right? Exactly. It's what? very scary. Right. Yeah. Very and, scary. and I guess I'd be bold enough to say that almost anything that can be done will be done, uh, whether we think it should be done or not, many of us. Um, and there is real concern that people will use CRISPR in human embryos for enhancement. That is, somebody's saying, it's one thing to say, I don't really want to give birth to a child that has an awful disease, Tay-Sachs disease or, you know, what have you. It's, it's a whole other ethical dilemma and dimension to begin to say, gosh, we could make your child taller. We could make your child um, with a darker or lighter complexion. We could make your child with curly hair. Now, we're not there yet, okay? These, these kinds of traits um, often include many, many genes, and the technical um, wherewithal isn't present to do that yet. But CRISPR brings us one step closer to the notion of designer genes and designer babies, which is troubling to, to many people. Yeah, uh, I would argue it could me. be terrifying. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I agree. When do you think if you have a crystal ball, which for most of us happily is happily cloudy, when do you think that era of designer gene therapy or gene editing, more accurately, would occur? I, I think in the next two decades, we might see the kind of technological advances that would lead, uh, in theory, to the ability to tweak um, an embryo at the one or two cell stage and, quote, enhance it for various uh, characteristics. I think the most frightening thing about that in many ways, besides all just the societal um, dilemmas of what should we do to, you know, what is enhancement, right? Enhancement might be different to one person or another. But to me, one of the things that's scary is the, the realization, the, the, the fact that nothing we have ever done in medicine is without risk of problems, right? We create problems when we use medicines. Even, the, even our best therapies, our best uh, technologies come with baggage. 
When we start manipulating human embryos, we will now be visiting those errors on future generations, right? We've never had to confront this kind of situation before. And it's one thing to say to an individual, all right, you know there are risks. Do you want this medicine? And people will say, yeah, I, I want that medicine. But who are we to decide for generations hence, right, future generations that, well, this is worth it and I'm going to subject my next generations to the problems, say the um, unintended edits that might go with something like CRISPR use in an, in an embryo. These are new um, and difficult ethical problems that, you know, we often see with powerful technologies um, and we're going to have to grapple with those as we go forward. What fun uses of genetic tools are, are on the horizon? Yeah, one of the things I'm very excited about is it stems from the following observation. About 1% to 2% of the population of our country is walking around with pathogenic variants that predispose to serious disease, but that uh, is preventable. Okay, so a good example would be a condition called Lynch syndrome. About one in 400 people carries a genetic variant that um, puts them at very high risk for colorectal cancer and uterine cancer, um, and that's called Lynch syndrome. Uh, we cannot identify all those people right now through family history because families are small, other things happen to people. Now, with the use of DNA and analytic technology, we have the prospect of going into the population and saying, who has Lynch syndrome, right? Let's analyze the, the Lynch genes. Who has mutations in BRCA1? In other words, analyzing people for diseases that they have a high risk for, that are very serious, and critically, that we have well-established preventive modalities that we can implement. And that could benefit 1% to 2% of the population. I think of it as kind of newborn screening for adults. And I think that we should investigate the, the um, notion of that and see whether we might be able to do the population good. I would emphasize we should investigate it because, you know, medicine is full of um, times where we've had a good idea and it hasn't turned out so good. So I think we need to uh, we need to look at these exciting ideas and then we need to test whether we're really doing people um, benefits harm or, harm or, or good. harm. Harm or good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Dr. Evans, thanks so much for spending time today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. Next time, we'll talk about one of the diseases we mentioned on this podcast, that is cystic fibrosis with Dr. Scott Donaldson. You may subscribe to the Chairs Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.